our Father in heaven. Again, it's amazing to us that Christ has come. Uh, it is our hope that he will come again. In the meantime, uh, we need desperately to know how it is that we are to think, uh, how it is that we're to feel, uh, how it is that we're to live. And so I pray that as we come to your word that you would teach that to us by your spirit that you will enable us to think and feel and live rightly in these days. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Hebrews in chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 please. I want to read really from the middle of verse 26 through the end of the chapter. So just two and a half, if you will, verses. At least it's the middle of verse 26 in the version from which I'm reading. and yours it may be uh, a bit different, but in the English Standard Version, I'll begin in the middle of verse 26. Hear the word of God. But as it is, he, that is Jesus, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Um, now, uh, during this Advent season, we've mentioned that we're going to concentrate, and we've been concentrating our attention, not so much on the first Advent of Jesus, but on the second coming, the second Advent of Jesus. Thus, the passages chosen have been to fit that particular theme. Normally, we're not thematic, but we have this moment uh, between uh, sort of how I'm preaching to, to, to handle this second Advent a bit of Jesus. Certainly, we haven't done it exhaustively, but I hope it's been helpful. We've noticed some similarities, however, between the first Advent of Jesus and the second Advent of Jesus. First similarity is that they were both promised that uh, the first coming of Jesus was promised or prophesied. As, as we look through the Old Testament scriptures, most especially, we see that his coming was pro- promised even in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 where God said that one would come from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. So we've been looking forward, they had been looking forward to this one coming. Uh, And then certainly in the uh, calling of Abraham, there was a promise of one to come because one from the family or from the seed, a descendant of Abraham would come and bless all of the families, all of the nations of the earth. Um, uh, Moses spoke of one who was to come who would be a prophet like him who would come and in a sense deliver the people of God. It was spoken to David that there would be one who would come and sit on his throne forever. Uh, The prophets spoke of one who was to come. The prophet Isaiah as we sang in that beautiful hymn this morning that he would come from Jesse's seed from from, 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 from David if you will this very one to come. And he would bear the iniquity of his people as he prophesies in Isaiah in chapter 53. He'd be born of a virgin as he speaks in Isaiah in chapter 7. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of him as well as he spoke of the new covenant coming. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of him coming as well as he said there's, God would say, I'm going to come and be the shepherd of my people Israel and all of that. And so, so we see that it was, it was promised. His second advent was promised as well, even in the old covenant. And all the, all the language concerning the day of the Lord which was to come and all the restoration 
Revelation passages of, of the people returning to their land all refer in some sense to the second advent of Jesus where, where his kingdom would be, would be restored. Um, the, the, the prophets spoke of a new heavens and a new earth, that which was to come, and, and, and peace which would rule and, and reign on the earth um, forever. So, so it was all spoken of most certainly. Our Lord Jesus spoke of his second coming when, when he spoke of it coming like a thief in the night, when he spoke of, of the Son of Man coming again, when he, when he spoke of, of, of going to a place to prepare a place for his disciples and would come again for them and to take them where he is. He spoke at the Passover meal of his, of his coming saying that, that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he did again with them in his Father's kingdom. Not only that, it was spoken of in, during Jesus' ascension that he would in fact return. The angel said, why do you marvel at this ascension, this Jesus going? He'll come again as he has coming, as he's leaving now in the clouds of glory. Uh, the apostle speaks of Jesus' second coming as well and what will happen when he does and all of that. So, so we see it's, it's promised. Not only that, we realize there's a similarity in that both comings were sudden and surprised many. Uh, his first coming, sudden in the sense that, that all of a sudden uh, everything is in play. The angel comes to Mary. The angel comes to Joseph. It's here. It's coming. Uh, the, the announcement to the shepherds. And they, they looked and there it was. He was here, this one born. Surprise to those who weren't looking for him. Surprise for those who didn't want him to come as the religious leaders of the day. Um, but not a surprise to those who were waiting for him. Not a surprise for the old man Simeon in the temple who'd been looking for him all his life. Not a surprise for the woman Anna who was of great age but had been in the temple many, many years looking for this one. Not a surprise to the Magi who had been looking. Not a surprise really even uh, to some who were waiting for this prophet, this Messiah, this Christ, the very Son of God to come. Um, and we realize that it, he will come in his second advent suddenly as well. That there he will be, as Jesus put it, like a thief in the night. But not to surprise, at least us, we should be waiting, we should be alert for him. Even though at the very end there, there is likely to be, may well be, as the scripture says, great rebellion. And even a man of lawlessness to lead that, to, to lead people astray. Even then, we should still expect him to come. He should be sudden, but not a surprise to us. He shouldn't show up for us like a thief in the night, if you will, we should say, oh yes, we've been awaiting your coming. Well, on this day, he, he was born, we say, on this day of Advent, we think about this time that he was born uh, in Bethlehem. And, 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 and uh, he, he came in humility, uh, but, but he would come again in triumph. In fact, the author of Hebrews lays out this a comparison between his first and second coming. And rather than uh, concentrate or emphasize the similarity, he's showing in some sense uh, a difference. Not only does he come in, in, in his first coming in humility and his second in great triumph, but his purpose is different as well. Notice as, as we put it, as he puts it in Hebrews in chapter 9, he said, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. Now notice he's calling the first advent of Jesus the end of the ages. 
So the, the beginning of the end came then. The, we're living and have been since the coming of Jesus in these last days, right? All is put into place. But as it is, he appeared that as Jesus once for all at the end of the ages, and, 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 and his purpose was in his first coming uh, to put away, uh, to put away uh, uh, sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he came to die as he told his disciples, I've come to die. He would tell his disciples, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. Um, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear sins of many, so he's already done that, now he's going to appear a second time not to deal with sin, at least in that same way. It's already been dealt with in his first advent. So his first advent, he comes to deal with sin. His second advent, he comes to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, just let me pull aside from this, just a little, little, little sidebar here, just, just to take note of something. I won't play with this, but, but, but I just want to lay this out for you so, you so you see it, and it'll make sense. We'll need no explanation. And that is that... For every decisive experience that we have, Christ has a corresponding experience as well. We die. He died. We arrive at judgment. He arrives at judgment. Now the difference is, these aren't just parallel experiences. It isn't just that we do something and he does something. His doing of it transforms our doing of it. That is, it isn't just that Christ crosses the river and we cross the river. It's that he crossed the river and built a bridge. He crossed the river and come back for us. He crossed the river and enables us to get over it, right, in him. So, so his experience of, of life transforms ours. So he faced temptation so that we could face temptation. He died so that we could live. His death transforms ours. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, we, we read of, of the work of Christ like this, verse 56. Paul writes, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus died, he took the stinger out. When I was a little kid, we had a lot of bushes out in front of our house. There were always bees and what we called um, yellow jackets. I don't know what, the, 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 they're just fat bees. Uh, and and they st their, sting is, their, their sting is worse, right? And so we were always told not to worry about that. And, 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 and or not, not, to, not to play with them uh, and get near them. Uh, we did stupid things. We, uh, we would try to smash them with our hands and all of that and kill them because we were macho. But you know there's a little hollow in the palm of your hand and if you go like this and you catch a bee right in the hollow, it lives. And you know what it does. You no longer have the hollow in your hand for the afternoon. It's things you didn't suppose of. But this bee's dangerous. This is the stinger. If you could take out the stinger, then they're just flies, right? It's just annoying not to worry about them at all. And that's what Jesus did to death, you see. He took out the stinger. So it's just annoying. But, 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 but it, it, it really, ultimately, for those for whom it's, the stinger's been taken out, it, it can't really, really hurt us. And the author of Hebrews lays this out in, 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 its, in its fullness, really, in Hebrews. In chapter 2, verse 14, like this, he says... 
since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is, became like us, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, if you were sitting in a room with, of bees, <laughs> you'd be enslaved to fear that they were going to hurt you. But if they had no stinger, then you would no longer need to be in fear of them. And so that's what Jesus did. Took out the sting of death. The law that condemns us, and rightly so, he has taken the condemnation. Thus, the law, the law no longer has anything over us to condemn us. Thus, when we die, we face this judgment and we live. We are saved. His death transforms us. His coming to judgment transforms our coming to judgment. Because when he comes, he comes to save us, to rescue us from that. That's the very point here. That's all I wanted to say about that. But, this, this comparison of Jesus' uh, first coming and his second coming. The author of Hebrews makes note, of course, that in his first coming, Jesus dealt sufficiently with sin. He, he put it away, which is really a technical term in this, in, 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 in this language, a technical term, a legal term. It says he, he really canceled it. He, he set it aside. He, he canceled it. And, 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 and that's because, you see, sin for us creates a debt, a twofold debt. On the one hand, sin means, of course, that we have disobeyed God. So what do we owe God? On the one hand, we owe him obedience. And on the other hand, we owe him uh, the payment, the penalty, for having disobeyed him. Well, Jesus deals with both of that, right? Because his obedience is for us. It's transferred, it's given, it's credited, it's counted to us. So his obedience, you see, takes care of that part of our debt. He's already done it for us, as us. And on the other hand, he pays the penalty. The way that you cancel a debt, of course, is to pay it. So that when you pay it, the person stamps on it, paid. They could, pay, they could stamp on it, as they have in older times, canceled. The debt is canceled. And so it's canceled for us, you see. That's what he did in his first coming, which means that we die once, he died once. It took care of it for us once. It means that there's nothing else that has to be done to pay for our sin. It's been put away. He did that in his first coming, past present, future sins, Jesus did it for every generation of all those who believe in him. All those, we could put it this way, for whom he died, for whom his atoning sacrifice was satisfactory, all right, was received. And so that's what he did at the end. And it was a sacrifice of himself. He came once for all to bear sins. The scripture says it's been appointed for man, for each of us, man used there inclusively of all human beings. It's, it's been appointed to man to die once. A couple of exceptions of which we know. Enoch, it appears in the Old Testament, didn't die. And poor John the Baptist got to die. I mean, poor um, Lazarus got to die twice. Um, you know, I always wonder what happened in his second death. 
the women at the church probably said, ah, let's not bring any casseroles for a few days. Uh, remember what happened last time? You know, <laughs> let's, just, let's just wait on this one just to see, see what happens here. So, but, 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 but he got to die twice, uh, John did. But, but you know, for everybody else, it's once. You've been appointed once to die. And then comes this judgment. So it's Jesus dying once took care of our once dying. But it's appointed. Our days are numbered. They really are. And we'll die on that day, at that moment. And then, ultimately, the judgment. Jesus, it was appointed for him to die as well. Before the creation of the world, he was chosen by his Father to be this one who would die. And God worked all of history around in such a way that on that particular day, on that particular moment in time, Jesus would die by that particular death for that particular reason, to bear the sins of many first coming. Now, uh, we see that he then comes, after having transformed death for those who believe, he comes to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Uh, by that it means that, that, that he, since he's taken that penalty for sin, then, then he rescues us from that particular moment in time. We can ask the question, well, wait a minute, I thought that I was already saved. This says he's going to come to save us. I, I thought we were already saved. I thought believers in Jesus were already saved. So is our salvation present here with us and secure, or is it future? And the answer to that question is yes. Okay? It's yes. It's, it's both. There's a sense in which, yes, we're saved now, fully and secure, and yes, in, in which our salvation is yet, at least in its fullness, to come. For instance, because of the work of Christ, Paul the Apostle can write in Romans in chapter 5, this, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 5 Verse 1, and it says, all past tense, we have been justified, which means that God has declared us to be righteous in his sight. That's a declaration by God. He doesn't go back on his word. And so there we have it. We've been justified. So in that sense, yes, we are saved. And it says we have peace with God, which means there's no longer any hostility. There's no case that God has against us. We have peace with him. We're reconciled to him. That's all a done deal. So in that sense, yes, indeed, we are, in fact, saved. We could read verse after verse passage after passage, I suppose. Just one other, um, uh, two other. Galatians in chapter 2, the apostle writes, For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh. The, the, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, this testimony, yes, I am, if you will, saved. I've received this salvation from God. Ephesians uh, 2 verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so we say, yes, we have been saved. Those who put their faith, their trust in Jesus, live in this assurance that yes, it's all been taken care of. My sins have been dealt with. And that's what Jesus accomplished at his first coming. But there's something to complete that 
at his second coming. We can look at it like this. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he announced the coming of the kingdom of God. He referred to it as the gospel of the kingdom. And we think of kingdom, especially in this context, we think of a king. We think of a kingdom uh, is that over which a king rules. And so when Jesus was speaking of the kingdom of God coming, he was speaking of the rule of God coming. So you ask, well, doesn't God rule over everything all the time? The answer is yes. So then, is this kingdom of God still to come? The answer is yes. What do you mean? Well, there's this universal rule of God over which he rules, he, he rules over everything. But there's a sense in which when we speak of the kingdom of God in this sense, the sense in which Jesus spoke of it as the gospel of the kingdom, we're speaking of the rule of God, his commands being joyfully, willfully obeyed. So when John the Baptist introduces Jesus, he says, repent, stop disobeying, stop thinking wrongly about God. And now, because the kingdom of God is right here, Jesus came on the scene introducing himself that that same way, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. How could he say that? He could say that because he was the king. And this would be the gospel of the kingdom. That is the good news of the kingdom. The good news that now God has come to deal with his enemies. God has come to deal with Satan and sin and death and all of that. And Jesus said, now this is really at hand. We can see that God is desiring to establish a kingdom from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. There was God to be the, the one to rule over Adam and Eve uh, in, in, in that place in Eden and then ultimately the earth. Uh, but they rejected his rule. And so then we see the, in shadow form this kingdom coming. We see it in the promise to Abraham that there'll be people in the land. We see it with Moses that, that here is a law a constitution of the kingdom. This is the very will of God. This is what pleases him. This is how he rules. And we see then also that, that, that Moses would take them to a land over which God would be, should be king, and the people should follow him. We see even a, a king in proxy under God, David, to come and rule and reign and, and all of that. But the people continue to reject that rule. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, the kingdom of God, it's here, it's at hand. And so when he says that we're to pray, your kingdom come, what he is asking us to pray, commanding us to pray, leading us to pray, is your will be done. Because you see, in the kingdom of God, his will, and it's this will of his commands, that which he desires, that which is fitting to his character, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so what Jesus is saying is, I've come now to inaugurate this kingdom. I've come now to, 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 to show the beginnings of this kingdom. I've come now to, be, to, to deal with the enemies of this kingdom. Because you see, in the language of the New Testament, there is this present evil age, and there is this age to come. Now, this present evil age is this age over which the scripture says that Satan is the god of this present evil age. Now, now, we know that God doesn't abdicate the throne to Satan. We know that God is still sovereign over all things, even over Satan. But what he's saying is that in this evil age, 
evil people following after or not following after God are really taking their cues from Satan, the deceiver. And so Satan, in that sense, is the god of this evil age. But there is an age to come. And that age to come is the kingdom of God. Now, in the Old Covenant, the prophets saw this sort of all together. I mean, when you you read the prophets, it's sort of like you get the impression that when the Messiah comes, boom, that's it. When Jesus comes, it isn't quite it. That's sort of what faked out his disciples for a while. Okay, you're here, and this is it. And Jesus said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is only the beginning of it. It's here, I'm inaugurating the kingdom, I'm dealing with Satan, I'm dealing with sin, I'm dealing with death, but there's still a gathering of people to come throughout this age. And what's confusing to us is we live now in this time of the overlapping of these two ages, the age of the present evil age and also the age that is to come. They're here together. In fact, Jesus laid this out, for instance, in Matthew in chapter 13, he speaks this, what we call the parable of the weeds. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the weeds along with them. So both grow together until harvest. And at harvest time I'll tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather wheat into my barn. Now what does this mean? Jesus kindly explains, verse 36, verse 37. He answered, when they asked him to explain, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world's, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and so the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the, in, into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. What are we to hear? But to hear that in this present moment, this present time, we live in the intermingling, if you will, or the overlapping of the age that is and the age to come, the present evil age and the, and the age that is to come. And we realize that the evil one has spread, these weeds, if you will, and yet we are to live among them. A day will come when all of that will be sorted about. But right now, we see it. We're mixed up in it. Right? And so what we're anticipating, you see, is Jesus to come and to save ultimately in its fullness what we call the consummation at this second advent. Now in his first advent, for us, for those who aren't weeds, for us, he's dealt with these enemies. As king, he's dealt with these enemies. He's dealt with the enemy, Satan. He's triumphed over him by way of the cross. Uh, sin 
he's triumphed over sin by way of his cross. Death, he's triumphed over death by way of his cross. And we see even in the life of Jesus what we might call glimpses into this kingdom of God when the rule of God really rules and reigns. Um, we see it, for instance, in Matthew somewhere in chapter 4, verse 23. The scripture says, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, uh, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. In other words, when the kingdom of God would come, we would see God's righteousness, we would see God's power, we would see God's goodness, and people would be healed. In Matthew in chapter 12, we read the fact that when the gospel of the kingdom comes, demons are, are just cast out. Evil is, is gone. We see that, you see. Now, what's fascinating is this language of the kingdom of God. I know this is really heavy for like Christmas, but, but this, this, is, this is what we call our worldview. This is how we understand life. You, you, you know, people talk about having a worldview. Well, that just doesn't happen, you know. It, it happens by your thinking. All right? He just said, well, I have a worldview. Uh, the question is, is it the right one? And I'm giving you the right one, by the way, because it's coming from here. So, so this sense of this, how do we understand the world in which we live? How do we understand history? Well, that's what this is, you see. It's this, it's this world uh, view where we live in this overlapping time. Uh, and we see the kingdom of God. Now, this language in the New Testament of kingdom of God, you realize, is synonymous with eternal life and salvation. Kingdom of God, synonymous with eternal life and salvation. You could use them interchangeably. The reason I say that is because Jesus and his disciples did. You might remember there was a rich young man that came to Jesus one day. And he asked Jesus the question, how do I inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus talked to him about the commandments and all of that. You remember Jesus' comment after this rich young man went away because he really didn't want to inherit eternal life, at least by Jesus' way. And uh, you remember Jesus' comment. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is, a, than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, why didn't Jesus say to enter into eternal life? That was the question. Because in Jesus' mind, to enter into eternal life is to enter into the age which is to come, which is to enter into the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. Well, then the disciples, realizing what Jesus was saying, they scratched their heads a moment and said, wait a minute, you can't get a camel through an eye of a needle. That's impossible. So then they said to Jesus, well, then who can be saved? Why didn't they say, well, then who can enter into the kingdom of God? Or why didn't they ask, then who can have eternal life? Because in their minds, and Jesus didn't correct them, salvation and eternal life and the kingdom of God were all the same. Nuanced, but all the same, really. You could use those, that language synonymously. And then Jesus thankfully said, well, don't worry about that. That which is impossible with men is possible with God. Not only for rich men, but for poor men too. That he can enable us to enter into the kingdom of God, the work of the Spirit. That's why Jesus would say, you can't enter, see, perceive, enter the kingdom of God unless you're born from above that work of God. All right? And so, what are we saying? We're saying that eternal life exists with us now because God has dealt with sin and Satan and all of that by way of the cross. 
but also that there's something to come. And that is what the Bible calls our blessed hope. Now the question is, for whom is that? And the way the author of Hebrews puts it is, that is for those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now most certainly that would include those who are already in glory. Because if you read through uh, the book of Revelation, for instance, and it quotes any of those who are already there, they're longing for this to be over. They really get it, all right? There is no fun apart from all of it being over. Now, now that's a better condition there than here, but they are closer to the reality of the consummation of the kingdom. See, they're, in a sense, disembodied souls in glory. And they realize, no, 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 there's still something else to come that's going to even be better than this. When the new earth appears, when the earth is renewed, when, when, when we have imperishable bodies, when we live on the earth as human beings, as we were meant to live, living and basking in the glory of God and all of that, they, they get that. And so they're saying, come on, let's hurry this up. All right? And we're the lollygaggers. We're rather content with this. But they're not content with this. And so we need to get the mindset of eagerly waiting for him. What does that mean? It means that, that our hope, our heart's desire, our focus is the fact that there is an age to come that has penetrated us now, the glory of the kingdom, and that, 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 that we're waiting then for him to come. That's our heart's desire. This glory of what is to come. For instance, in, in Titus, in chapter uh, 2, uh, Paul writes to Titus like this, verse 13. He speaks, he says, We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know how it is that you think and meditate, prepare to meet Christ. Do you think much of it? The glory of it. What it would be like to be in the very presence of Jesus and know that he sees you and know that he knows you and know that he loves you and know that you belong to him. Various things in this life thrill us as we meet and know other people. There are famous people you meet and get a certain buzz from that. There are people you're married to you love. There are children that you have and that you, when you see them, you love them. There are grandchildren that you hold and you just can't imagine anything better. You sort of bask, if you will, in their glory. And when they look at you, and you, they, you, you, they know me. There's a special thing here. Everything else fades away. But to imagine seeing, savoring the face of Jesus, the blessedness of that. So he says, that's, that's what we're hoping for. And when we see that, there's a sense in which everything fades away. There's a sense in which we lose our self-consciousness, if you will. We stop worrying about ourselves because we know that we are fine. 
that everything's taken care of. I don't need to think about me. Now I see the very glory of Christ and we're to live in the midst of that blessed hope and the hymn writers speak of the bliss of it, which is wonderful, but we, we mustn't get caught in the bliss of it because that's a bit selfish, it seems, what's, what's in it for me. But the, the great thing is finally we see the glory of Christ and everybody sees the glory of Christ and we all are caught up, if you will, in the midst of that. But there is great bliss in that. The bliss of it, uh, the, the pleasure of it, the enjoyment of it, the happiness of it, to, to be without sin, <laughs> to have no struggle at all with pride, or with anger, or with lust, or with impatience, or with harsh and ungodly thoughts and Bitterness. Oh, that gone. There you are. I, I don't even know how that feels. Do you know how that feels? I mean, you know, how does that feel? There you are. So, so personally, you see, oh, no guilt. Huh. No regrets. No guilt. No sorrow. No sadness. Physically perfect in body. Emotionally perfect in emotion. All that you feel is right to feel. All that you feel is good to feel. Socially, in relationships with others, Everything on the basis of love one to another. Think of it. Having nothing against anyone, no one having anything against you. Do you imagine that kind of, of relationship one to another politically? I don't know how we'll be organized in terms of, of being on this new renewed earth and all of that. But, 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 but politically, however that is, there'll be peace, right? Peace among all those who are doing whatever in the context of, of our lives and the earth will be new, renewed it won't fight back our work will be blessed in all that we do everything that our hands touched will be blessed in that sense the earth no longer no longer fighting back because you see that's where we'll be in, the, in, this, in this kingdom that's come and Jesus ruling and reigning over that us with him that wonderful old little ditty that I used to sing with my kids uh, this world is not my home I'm just a passing through uh, if heaven's not my home then Lord what will it I don't know how it is but anyway uh, that's true and false, of course. This world isn't our home, not this world, but the earth is. The earth, we're, we're, we're not going to be in some sort of, sort of you know, ethereal, uh, cloudy uh, existence all of our lives. We're going to be on an earth. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth upon which we'll live as human beings under the rule of God and all will be well in the midst of that. And thus we, we, we look forward to that. So how does that inform us now? Uh, we live by faith in eager anticipation of his coming, which has an impact on our desires and our praying. In Luke in chapter 18, Jesus asks the question really that uh, uh, is a corollary to what the author of Hebrews writes about him coming to save those who are waiting for him. In Hebrews in chapter, in Luke in chapter 18 and the end of verse 8, Jesus says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He'll say, Will he find anybody with faith? And I would say, anybody eagerly waiting for him to come. Now, do you remember this story? Let me just read it to you quickly. 
And, he, and Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they had always to pray and not lose hearts. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust, unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he'll give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith, faith on earth? What's Jesus' point? Well, his point isn't that God is reluctant to give like this unjust judge was reluctant to give. God was saying, listen, Jesus was saying, listen, God isn't like the unjust judge. He'll give it speedily. The question is, the question is, will you trust him? The question is, will you keep going to him in the midst of this world where there are weeds, in the midst of this world where there's an overlap of the present days and the age that is to come? Will you, in the midst of this existence, when it doesn't look like there's righteousness upon the earth, will you, because it's your heart's desire, will you continue to cry out to God for it? Will you... Uh, because you know that God is the only one who can give it, will you continually cry out to him in faith, eagerly waiting for him? Why did this widow want justice? Because she knew it was right. That was all that mattered. Why did she go to this judge? Because he was the only one who could give it. Sadly for her, he was unjust and wouldn't give it speedily. Why do we go for God, to God for righteousness? Because he's the one who can give it. And he will, because it's consistent with his kingdom. And so you see, when Jesus says, will I, when I come, find any faith on the earth? He's saying, is there anybody there, anybody going to be on earth who wants what I want? Is there anybody on earth who's crying out for that which I give? Is there anybody else who really desires the kingdom to really come in all of its fullness? Is anybody out there like that who's crying out, God, bring righteousness. May your kingdom rule and reign on this earth. The scripture tells us in Philippians chapter 3 that we're citizens even now of the kingdom of heaven. And so you see, we should behave as if that's true. It's interesting in Philippi, this passage I just quoted, Philippians chapter 3, Philippi was what was called a Roman colony. And a Roman colony was a, was, 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 was a, a, a place where people from Rome had moved. Be like if we had a Lawrence colony in Kansas City, we'd all get up and we'd move there. Now, they were known as this Roman colony because they retained the culture and the customs of Rome. So even though they lived in another place, Philippi, if you came across one of them, you'd say, you seem like a Roman to me, because you still live like a Roman. If we all moved to Kansas City, they'd say, you seem like you're from Lawrence. You wear funny shoes. <laughs> right? You talk from all that sort of thing like we do. Snobbish. Uh, but... Uh, um, uh, so you see, there's a sense in which as we live now, the kingdom of God has come to us. The enemy has been dealt with. The power of sin has been broken. The guilt is gone. Oh, still sin's present. That will someday be gone. 
But we live in the midst of that. We're to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're to have the culture of heaven about us. We're to have the culture of the kingdom of God about us. We're to live in such a way that people would see mercy and people would see justice and see people would see grace, people would see patience, people would see truth in us. And that will be in contrast to everything else that's in this present age. And that's how we're to live. And as we live that way, what we're saying is, I'm eagerly awaiting Christ to come. I'm eagerly awaiting the kingdom in its fullness to come because that's really my life. All of this inaugurated with Jesus' first coming. He came and announced it. He came and proclaimed it. He came and dealt with the enemies of of his rule and his reign. He came by way of his life to live righteously for us. He came by way of his death to deal with Satan, to triumph over him. He came by way of his death to deal with sin by paying its penalty and breaking its bondage. He came by way of his death to deal with death itself, to take away its hold upon us and by his resurrection to give us life. So it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup and after giving thanks he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. So when we're making that proclamation, what are we saying? We're saying the kingdom of God has come. It's come in what sense? It's come in the sense that Christ has come and he's dealt with the enemies of the kingdom. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated sin. He's defeated death. Trust in him. And upon you, the kingdom of God has come. But we proclaim the Lord's death by this meal until he comes. That is, there's still a coming of Jesus. And in that coming, what will he do? He'll bring it to fullness. He won't come to deal with sin because he's dealt with sin. And now he'll come to save us so that we'll be ushered into his rule, his reign, everything that reflects him and that forever. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us, that we would believe that. That it would be our very hope and that we now would live eagerly waiting for that which Christ has begun to come to fruition and fullness. The kingdom of God that we enjoy presently the eternal life that we enjoy presently, the salvation that we enjoy presently, will cause us to desire its fullness. To know the rule and reign of Christ over everyone and everything, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To know life in all of its fullness to see the glory of Christ and to know the bliss 
of being in his presence. To be saved in the richest and deepest sense of that word. May that be our longing and inform all of our thoughts and all of our words and all of our actions, all of our emotions. May you find us living by faith, longing for that which pleases you, crying out for it so that you would be glorified. May that be true of us, Father. And now as we come to this table, Lord Jesus, I pray that you meet us here. That this bread and juice would be set aside in such a way, set apart in such a way that we would know your presence here with us. Know that you have inaugurated the kingdom. Know that you have come to deal with Satan and sin and death. Know that we're secure in you. And then in the midst of coming to this table that you, Lord Jesus, would meet us and increase, strengthen our faith. Enable us to live in such a way as would show that we are indeed citizens of the kingdom of God. Please meet us here, Lord Jesus. Amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who know their need, who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. You receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners and who desire to live in such a way that reveals, that shows, that's consistent with their profession that, yes, we believe in Jesus that he is the king of the kingdom and that he's come and that he's coming again. If that's true for you, I invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, eat it as you do. Remind yourself that Christ has come and Christ is coming again. Please come.